Hello, welcome to another Pharmacy in Practice podcast. Um, every guest I have on the podcast is special. Um, no one is more special than others. Um, very interesting um, pharmacist, originally from Glasgow, actually, which I was um, interested to learn as we were speaking before the, 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 the recording. Um, and he is the Guild of Healthcare Pharmacists Vice President. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure, yeah. Uh, my name's uh, Ewan Moll, and as you rightly point out, I'm currently, well, recently appointed as the uh, Vice President of the Guild of Healthcare Pharmacists. Um, as the day job, I'm the Head of Medicines Optimization at Sunderland CCG, um, and they are uh, both extremely interesting and very diverse roles. Sounds interesting. Sounds fascinating, yeah. Um, straight into your role, I'm going to ask you about your career in a wee minute or two, but um on your job title medicines optimization do you prefer that to the term pharmaceutical care would you rather be called head of pharmaceutical care um i i it's difficult i think medicines optimization over over the last few years i think has kind of or certainly in in ccg land in england has been kind of been co-opted and infused with with money saving which is not really what I see medicines optimization as, and it's certainly not what's in the definitions of medicines optimization. But I speak to a lot of people around the system who who think the medicines optimization is managing a prescribing budget, and that um, you know clinical pharmacy and in inverted commas is a is a completely separate thing. And I I don't see them as that at all. Um, I see that if you provide good pharmacy services across the system, then the the budget almost takes care of itself and so i i you know really try to emphasize the the outcomes based aspect of good medicines optimization rather than um rather than the money so it may be i don't have a problem with the term medicines optimization but i maybe do have a slight problem with what it's been misinterpreted as and what it's come to mean got you okay you said the c word clinical yeah i know yeah yeah no no comment on that we're not going down that rabbit hole. No, um, any 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 expedition even towards that rabbit hole in this podcast is completely banned. So um, and and I decide that. So that's that's that. Um, so yeah. So what? I mean, that's that that's a that's a fairly senior role you and you've you, you've managed to achieve. So so what's your? Um, I'm going to ask you about your career again. We were discussing before how you. I was interested to hear that you went to uni in Aberdeen and stuff. So how how has your career progressed since your undergraduate years in in Aberdeen into that role? Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, you're right. I'm from Glasgow. Went to uni at Robert Gordon's. Um, the reason for that being obviously there's two two schools of pharmacy. I wanted the one that was furthest away from home, so that was why I ended up in in uh, in Aberdeen. Um, all the way through, kind of working at school and and through my years in a uh, community pharmacy in Glasgow. Um, I'd, I'd start off going there as work experience at school and decided that was, that was what I fancy doing as a career. So um, did all of that, then went and did my pre-reg in Boots, um, worked uh, there for a year. That was the first year that they did the, the cross-sector placements in pre-regs. I went four weeks to both Falkirk and Stirling um, hospitals. And I, I can still remember very vividly in, in one of those days, I spent an afternoon with a pharmacist in, in the hospital in Falkirk and I 
wish I could remember the lady's name because I'd love to be able to credit her for it. But we spent an afternoon on a ward talking about um, just talking about individual patients and and kind of going through, I suppose, the concept of pharmaceutical care as it was within hospitals at the time. And it was like somebody had just kind of flicked a switch in my head and I thought, this is it. This is what I want to do. Um, you know, I hadn't particularly enjoyed my free reg in boots. And I, suddenly I found myself in this hospital going, yes, this is it. This is it for me. So um, after that, I applied for uh, jobs as a, as a newly qualified pharmacist. Ended up working in Glasgow and Stophill Hospital. Um, I worked there for a year, but then inevitably the draw of the fact that my, my girlfriend was from the northeast of England um, brought, me, brought me down here. Um, at the time, um, it, was, it was probably easier for me to get a job down here than it was for her to get a job up there because she was doing quite a specialist role. She was um, working for the Northumberland Wildlife Trust as a conservation officer. And obviously there's not too many of them around. So it was much easier for me to kind of head down to the northeast. So came down um, and then over the years that I've been here, that was I think 2003. And then over the years that I've been here, I've worked in um, quite a lot of the hospital trusts in the northeast. Started off in Newcastle, went to Sunderland Hospital, did five years there. Then went to Northumbria for three years. Over the time was doing, you know, diploma, masters, prescribing, and all that sort of stuff. Um, did my prescribing in stroke medicine, so got quite involved in that. Um, then started to work in emergency, emergency care, cardiology, critical care. Um, did all that for a few years around the place, and then got the opportunity to apply for a job as a, a deputy pharmacist um, for operational services at Northumberland Tyne and Weir, which is a, a a mental health trust in the northeast, um, and I, so went there. That was a, a significant step up, a completely different role for me. Um, something that uh, you know was was quite an eye opener, um, and you know, but gave me huge opportunity to to develop. Did that for six years. Um, briefly in twenty sixteen, I think it was, had a short stint. Um, I did a secondment down on the south coast of England as uh, interim chief pharmacist at Southern Health. Um, they had a, a gap in between their, their previous chief pharmacist leaving and the new one being appointed. So they had a, a four-month gap where they needed somebody to come and fill in. Um, and for anyone who knows um, you know, the, the publicity that, that Southern Health was having around about 2016, it was, um, it was a, a very, very interesting time to be there. Um, so... Went there for four months, then came back after the secondment, and then about 12 months ago um, was appointed to, to this role um, as Head of Medicines Optimization at CG, which is completely different to anything I'd ever done before. Uh, I I thought that I understood the NHS until I came into this role and found out that it's far more complex than I'd previously thought. Um, so, yeah, I've just been doing this for the last 12 months, and obviously in the, in the time that I've been doing this, the... The world of primary care is kind of turned upside down with the, with primary networks, and that's what I spend an awful lot of my time doing doing these days. Okay. No, congratulations getting get, you know achieving that that level of a role. You know, it's very 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 good in that in that space of time. Um, uh, again, we sh- we've got more stuff in common. I. Uh, I uh, I made a bid for freedom after studying in Aberdeen like you back to Northern Ireland where I did my pre-reg and uh, I actually quite enjoyed my pre-reg. I did it with Gordon's Chemist, great great chain of pharmacies in Northern Ireland. Um, but my wife she 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 followed me literally off the plane with a backpack. And um, anyway, uh, about a year and a half later, 
uh, here I was back in Scotland, so you can <laughs> you can tell who won that conversation or yep. argument. <laughs> um, what are your like? What are the big projects or big goals that you're working towards at the moment? Then, yeah. So within, well, do you mean within the CCG or within the role as the guild? So I haven't really mentioned no, the let, guild yet. Let's do the let's do the CCG first. Okay. Okay. Okay, so within the CCG, um, there are a number of things we've we've kind of as a team. Um, we're slightly unusual for a clinical commissioning group because we've got a, a, a fairly significant in-house medicines optimization team, where a lot of CCGs have have outsourced this, the commissioning support units um, and the like. So we're we're quite unusual that we have an entirely in-house team, and we, as a team, we're sort of split fifty-fifty, I suppose, between. Um, sort of strategic commissioning type functions and um, individual practice support. So I don't mean that in the sense of uh, pharmacists going into practices and and you know and seeing patients and, and doing prescribing and the like. But I mean in terms of supporting practices with managing their prescribing and their medicines optimization priorities. Um, for me, a big shift over the last year has been to try and kind of move that conversation on from being the traditional medicines optimization you know it's all about generic switches and saving money and, and all that sort of stuff to being much more um uh concentrating on things like health inequalities and and uh you know inappropriate over prescribing of opioids and that sort of thing um and to, to moving us to towards a position where we're far more outcome focused and far more working as part of a system. Um, a big part of the role has been building up better relationships with the local foundation trust and with community pharmacy and the organization. We now have, you know, what I think are fairly sensible, mature grown up conversations about the way that we use medicines across the system rather than um, some what has traditionally happened in the past, which is, well, it's it's your budget or it's my budget, so I'm not paying for it, and so on. And we're able to have a much better conversation now about actually what's the right thing to do for the people of Sunderland, and you know the other the money and everything just follows that. Um, so I suppose that's been that's been probably one of the big, um, successes I would say over the last twelve years, over the last twelve months, is that we have a much more sensible conversation about those sorts of things. Um, and, and I think within that context, that allows us to focus on, um, you know, some of the big, um, bigger priorities like, you know, opioid prescribing is one that I mentioned that obviously is a significant national priority at the moment. Um, it, it's kind of a difficult one for CCG to deal with because it, it, it's something that has such huge impact um, on on society within a city and in the northeast of England, we're particularly affected. Scotland is probably worse. England, to be honest, but in in the English context, the northeast is, is about as bad as it gets in terms of being an outlier for analgesic prescribing and opioid prescribing. Um, and and I think that's traditionally been a slightly difficult one for CCGs to to deal with because because um, there's not really a great deal of money to be saved in it. But the impact on society and the impact on individuals of over prescribing and inappropriate prescribing of analgesics is is really significant. Um, so I suppose getting the, the buy-in to, to kind of focus on that in a particular way as well, that's, that's, that's my main sort of clinical priority at the moment. No, that, that example around opiate prescribing and, and, and you obviously being in a position to pull the levers to influence that is really interesting to me because, you know, that 
that you're right. There's there's probably not that much money to be saved in it, but but the human impact is is potentially huge if you you guys work work hard to solve that. And I suppose that's that's one of the beauties of the of the NHS, isn't it? You, there are occasions like that when we, you know, guys like you can and your teams can do the right thing for patients rather than just chase the the cost savings. Uh, important as cost savings are. Um, now that's really interesting. So I want to talk about primary care networks. Now in Macbeth, William Shakespeare basically said, um, in no uncertain terms, history repeats itself. But you know, once all the shenanigans with Macbeth and his wife were finished, the witches that appeared at the start appeared at the end, and he was indicating there, I think that that the cycle was going to go round. So, so what, what, uh, what are what are primary care networks replacing in term and and what is what are they a reinvention of that's it's a really good question because anyone who's been around the nhs for any length of time knows that it does just go in a big cycle and it's usually about every seven years or so we get another significant reorganization and so i'm you know it's 2012 the time we had the last major reorganization so you know it's it's not surprising that that we're kind of heading that way again I think the interesting thing about whether well, there's a question about primary care networks itself and then there's the opportunity that it, it offers to the pharmacies a profession to be a part of it and I think there's there's two separate things I think um, primary care networks themselves I think I heard I, I was at an event where I heard a, a, a doctor sum this up really nicely and, and I, he was a GP and I wish I could remember his name he said um, that we uh, we used to see we used to see people as um, things to be moved around the system uh, uh and they were you know they were just the subjects of the system then we started to see them as consumers of the system and we treated them like like customers then we finally started to get to the point of seeing them as individual patients and treating them as individual patients now we're on the cusp of starting to see them as actually a function of a community or an output of a community and i think to me that kind of sums it up quite nicely because Yes, there's an awful lot that needs to be done well at individual patient level, but actually, if if your community is is fundamentally, you know, not contributing to good healthcare, then all you're ever doing is patching up individual patients within it. And I see primary care networks as being units of healthcare that are focused around individual communities. They're they're the right size to focus around individual communities that they will be able to direct and deliver health care that's needed for um for a very very localized group of people um and anyone who uh you know is particularly apparent in in cities the um the disparity you just need to go from one neighborhood to the next to see complete difference in deprivation levels health outcome investment um all sorts of other societal measures that actually being able to focus and direct um the delivery of of healthcare at that really localized level i think is has the potential to be a real game changer and i'm you know as you know i'm i'm, I'm fairly old and cynical about these things so i don't tend to get that easily about nhs reorganizations but i do see this one as being one that has the potential to really impact on people's lives in a way that not a lot has done before yeah i think, yeah. <clears throat> I think the the some of the challenges that we're facing kind of are still a hangover from the last reorganization and that we've been told for you know 20 odd years now that the way to deliver good healthcare was for everybody to compete 
And actually, we've recognised that's not the case anymore. The way to deliver good healthcare is to collaborate. But we're all separate legal entities, or certainly in England, we're all separate legal entities. And so actually, collaboration is really quite difficult. Um, so we're having to find ways around that at the minute. Um, but I do think that message of collaboration is, is starting to get through. Um, and I suppose that the last the last bits for that to reach are in those very localised primary care units. So, so you know, general practices, community pharmacies is, is two good examples of organisations that sit out there in communities are the absolute front line of healthcare, but haven't necessarily collaborated or, or had to collaborate particularly before because, you know, to a certain extent, they're all independent businesses and, and for them competition is key. But actually recognising that um, this is the 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 heart of healthcare in the community um, and the benefit in working together as a community that everybody within that is is stronger and particularly the, the patients in the community and the people within the community are better served. I, I think it allows it to be done very well at a local level. The, the risk, on the other hand, is, of course, that when you leave things up to that much kind of local direction is that you can get huge disparities in, in healthcare provision and how things are managed between very, very localised communities. So there's an awful lot of risk that goes along with it as well. And, you know, inevitably some will succeed and some will some will fail. But um, hopefully there's enough collaboration in the system to support those ones that are struggling and to, to spread the good practice among, from the ones that are, that are doing well. I think, I mean, it's early days for primary care networks and, I, you know, I, I am a bit disconcerted by the, you, you do get the cohort of early adopters who are just waiting for new stuff and, it, you know, there's this evangelical rush to make everything about primary care networks and I suppose a note of caution on that regard is is would be would be welcomed. What, what I see is the, the opportunity is um, is the multidisciplinary aspect. I mean, I like like you. I started off in community pharmacy. I ran a ran a pharmacy for for eight years for a multiple, and um, the huge difference for me in my working life, moving into general practice, as I've discussed before, is is be, is suddenly becoming part of a multidisciplinary team, and yeah. and actually it's been really interesting understanding what you know re re understanding what my personal. Um, kind of identity as a pharmacist is within that team and I do wonder is 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 primary care networks just a bigger play in that regard um I do I do I do wonder though uh, what what interests me is that you know back at the inception of the, the the NHS I can't remember the quote but Bevan said he had to pave the pave the way of the GPs with gold or something there was some quote to that effect and you know, I think my GP colleagues won't be too upset if I if I say that they've kind of they've kind of had it their own way for many years, and and they've largely controlled um, primary care and general practice, and and rightly so. But I guess maybe it's a sign that that they can't do it all themselves. Uh, by they, I mean GPs. Yeah. So is yeah. primary care networks maybe an extension of that? I, I think that I think I think you've articulated that really well. It is if if GPs see primary care networks as about um, just propping up general practice, then they're completely missing the point. I think, and I, and I hope that most of them don't see it as that. You're right. I went through a similar journey to you in terms of moving from community pharmacy into hospital and thinking, 
and, and seeing working as part of a multidisciplinary team and seeing all the ways that that can be done. And my previous experience, I, I, you know, I, I know this doesn't represent community pharmacy, it perhaps represents my experience of community pharmacy as a pre-reg, was, um, you know, the, the only involvement I had in liaising with GPs was, you know, when there was something wrong with the script or there was a shortage or something like that. And I had to, you know, phone up, never got past the receptionist, uh, you know, and eventually a replacement script got issued, and that was as close as we got really to MDT working at the time. And as I, say, I know, that's that's not the case anymore. But that was my experience of it. Went through the journey into hospital and working in a genuine multidisciplinary team. And I think finding finding my role and finding pharmacy's role in it. And that was back in the relatively early days of, of hospital pharmacy on wards, um, and having to almost kind of. At the start, trying to, to kind of fight to get your voice heard and to get your uh, your role recognised and your expertise recognised, but then seeing that journey through to the point where um, you were not just a, a welcomed member of the MDT, but you were actually it was actually demanded that you were there and that you were contributing as part of it. And I think we will hopefully see the same journey for for community pharmacists as part of PCNs into you know into these multidisciplinary teams. I think it's actually wider just than wider than just multidisciplinary healthcare teams because actually I keep going back to this fact that it's based around communities and that it's a network and that involves far more than just the GP and the pharmacist and the nursing staff talking to each other. That is, um, you know, social prescribers are a, are a key part of primary care networks as well, and there's a huge role for for you know um, signposting and directing to other. You know, non-healthcare or non-traditional healthcare type areas of support. Um, you know, people who suffer with isolation and things like that. There's a there's a huge role for um, the development of a genuine network there, where rather than, um, I mean, I, I heard it said the other day that 25% of 25% um, of people who go to see their GP could be better served by seeing somebody else because their issue is actually more social than medical. Now, that's, I'm not saying that we would try and tackle that 25% because it relieves pressure from the general practice workforce. Of course, that's true. But actually, that's 25% of people who, who, could have been, who could have been managed better elsewhere. And so it's not about taking pressure off one part of the system and applying it to another part of the system. It's about actually delivering what the patient needs in a, in a better way. One of the things that we've discovered locally in my practice is... Um, the, the GPs now, because we work as part of a multidisciplinary team and we we operate, I don't know how representative it is, but we operate largely like, as you described there, you know, the right person gets to the right person with the right skill set. And, you know, it's a cliche, but everybody, I would say everybody in our practice is working to, to, the, to the best of their ability and the inadverted commas, the top of their license, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But we must be mindful of the, of the, the unintended cons or well intended or unintended because what the gps are saying is that um on one hand the multidisciplinary team like me are really enjoying seeing on the day cases and you know running my respiratory clinic and the nurses really enjoy it as well and, and it's you know it's a great place to work but the gps are i wouldn't say they're finding it tough but they, they have noticed a change because they they are predominantly seeing more complex cases now um and within any network or system, I guess, to scale it back up to primary net, primary care networks, there could be consequences intended or unintended. 
Have you sort of, here's another NHSE kind of management term, have you horizon scanned what those consequences may or may not be yet? Um, yes, yes. Um, and there are there are various different ways of looking at it, ways of thinking about it. I think the the most pressing one that everyone is particularly concerned about at the moment is the the, the workforce issue, and that this this creates an extra uh, you know several thousand pharmacist roles um, out there, and and they're they're quite simply not pharmacists for the like kinds of experience and competencies to fill these roles, and so there's a number of risks with that. There's there's the risk that both either go unfilled and then get disinvested in and, and the opportunity disappears, or perhaps just as damaging that they get filled with people who are not at the right, uh, don't have the right competencies, not at the right levels, who come in and then don't perform. And then, you know, everybody loses confidence in, in pharmacy as a profession to, to be able to deliver. Um, I think both of those rules are, both of those risks are, are very real and very significant. And so one of the main um functions I see of, of my role and I and I hope there's somebody doing this in within every kind of localized system is about expectation management. Um, GPs I think and everybody else in the system need to understand that um, it, it might take longer than we think to get these people. Once we've got people it will certainly take a lot of time and a lot of effort um, to develop their skills and their competencies to get them to the point where they can function you know in the way you do running your own clinics and, and doing that sort of very direct patient-facing work. It, it takes quite a lot of investment in in doing that. Um, and if you if you look at it as a parallel, the development of of um, uh, pharmacists on wards delivering clinical services in hospitals, there's a if you go in as a junior pharmacist now, there's a huge structure around you to support you through that transition, um, and that just simply isn't there um, in general practice at the minute. There are you know, individual people doing very good jobs, and there are you know perhaps um, you know kind of smaller networks in some areas, but it, it's not established to the same degree. And so there are there are risks to the profession that if we can't deliver or don't deliver adequately, I think that's that's a really significant risk. There's a risk that we just don't get the people. There's a risk that the people that go in don't have the right competencies and, and struggle. There's the risk to individuals that if they go into the system and they don't get adequately supported, and then things go wrong. What happens then? Um, you know, there isn't really a precedent for this kind of stuff. So there's an awful lot of, of um, concerns, I would say, and, and risks about um, how this kind of plays out. But I don't want that to sound too negative because I really think it's it's a huge vote of confidence in the profession. And yes, I think the pressure is on us to, to deliver it. Um, and I think and I hope that every kind of... Um, person in a, in a senior position in, in any kind of pharmacy role around the country is dealing with this as a real significant priority at the minute because I think this is something where we need to come together as a system and we need to do it in a in a joined up way because if we don't um, then well firstly there's the risk that, that existing providers become destabilised because everyone you know, says, oh, I, I don't fancy doing on calls on weekends anymore. So I'm going to I'm going to nick off and go and work in a general practice Monday to Friday, nine to five. There's a risk to, to hospitals, there's a risk to community pharmacies that fundamentally lose quite a lot of their staff to it. Um, and so I think around systems, there needs to be a, a joined up way of thinking about how can we do this in a controlled, sustainable and safe way? 
And that's that's the approach we've taken in Sunderland, where we've got all of the relevant players in the system, you know, universities, providers, mental health trusts, and so on, around the table to talk about how we do this and how we open up things like shared posts between sectors and how we do professional support to people and, and all these questions that I think really need to be thought about and really need to be explored at the outset because otherwise we risk people just going out there and, and being unsupported and, and, and ultimately failing and not delivering what's required of them. So um, what, I, what I hope and what I would like to see is that across every localised system there are there are people leading on these kind of conversations and that nobody thinks that they can do it alone. There's so much within that, isn't there, really? Um, but I, I totally recognise what you say about um, the level of investment required in pharmacists, especially those coming from community pharmacy into general practice. I think I think concepts like medical supervision in those early days of, of transition, I think, um, you know, demonstrating competence and embedding how we demonstrate competence in our profession is, is critical. And then also differentiating practice leading to some role i don't know whether it, it, it's consultant pharmacist role or, or what it is but some way of recognizing that so that so the, the the young pharmacists coming in or or those later in their career transitioning of something to aim for but also mm-hmm. benchmarks at various <clears throat> stages i think I, I can maybe be a bit more direct and um slightly controversial than maybe you can you're you're you're, you're direct but but diplomatic if I may say, and I, I do wonder, have we oversold the ability of pharmacists coming into general practice? Because what I see is that there's been a, you know, there's been a gold rush to the promised land of general practice, and and actually, truth be told, it's a totally different job to community pharmacy, for example, and or mm-hmm. hospital pharmacy, and and I think the GPs of and this is maybe a bit controversial and they'll probably disagree, but some of them have jumped on that, perhaps because they're resistant to the change, perhaps because they feel threatened by the multidisciplinary team approach. Um, I don't know, but I just think, uh, I think the profession of pharmacy would do well to think about that and manage it a bit better. And I I mean, here we go again, I think, I think the professional body absolutely has a role in this you know um return to practice or change changing practice will no doubt be the most popular areas where pharmacists need support so so i think um i look forward to the to, to the rps um cracking on and 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 developing m- much more in that area actually don't know what you think about that yeah, I, I, well, I think you're right, and and just by coincidence, I've I've had a phone call with the RPS this morning about exactly that, um, because oh, really? um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just just entirely by coincidence. But they're doing there's a couple of bits of work that they're doing that that relate to this that they were looking for our perspective on from from the guild, um, and so you know I've I've kind of contributed to that. But I think the way the way you describe it is absolutely right. Um, I, I do want to pick on something you said though about community pharmacists because I think. I think that's a really interesting point because there's a um, there's a perception or there, there's a narrative, I suppose, that comes out of this that in the, the the kind of the basic competency training that everyone who who fits into these PTNs will have to do um, has and I'm I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but it's kind of intended to turn people from pharmacists into clinical pharmacists. And I know we're not going down that road, but that's that's there's a basic level of training that everybody is required to do to go to go into these primary care networks. Um, 
And I think my my perception of it is that actually some of these roles, people who are more likely to succeed in these roles are actually the community pharmacists rather than the hospital pharmacists, because there are, I think, more direct parallels, because as a community pharmacist, you have to make independent decisions repeatedly, and you have to manage risk repeatedly every single day in a way that in a hospital, there's always somebody to defer up to. Totally. Um, yeah. And so I think in terms of being able to make those decisions and deal with the, the consequences of those decisions, people who've got a community pharmacy background may actually be, be better prepared for that. Uh, you know, completely outside of any question about clinical skills and, and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of actually that, you know, you can learn clinical skills, you can learn, you can learn knowledge, you can learn about drugs, you can learn about conditions. It's really hard to, to that shift from, uh, for example, when I first became a qualified prescriber, you know, I've been I've been working as a pharmacist for I don't know seven or eight years or something like that. I'd been working into a stroke clinic, and it, you know, it was a stroke clinic, so we we're dealing with blood pressure meds and cholesterol and antiplatelets and stuff. Nothing particularly complex, but I still remember vividly the first time I prescribed simvastatin, and I, I had a panic about it, thinking I need to go away and treble check that this is the right dose and everything, and. Just that act of me writing it and putting my name on it suddenly changed everything. And that that's something that is more of a journey than any acquiring knowledge is that shift to that, you know, managing risk and having responsibility. Because as pharmacists, we're very good at kind of critiquing what other people do and not so good at actually doing things ourselves. Um, Definitely. I think community pharmacists are actually be, be better place for that than, than most people from other sectors. Totally agree with you. And I, I had a conversation a few years ago when I was, because um, I, di- I did get a wee bit disillusioned with, um, I, di- I wouldn't say I got disillusioned with community pharmacy. I got, I was struggling more with, with being an employee and, 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 and so on and so forth. So, so it's slightly different. But I, at that time, I had a conversation actually with um, Professor Harry McQuillan, Chief Executive mm-hmm. of, um, of Community Pharmacy Scotland. And I don't know what we bumped into each other. I think it was a parliamentary event I'd managed to wangle my way into. Um, but and, I, and we had a similar kind of chat about community pharmacy, and I was a bit down on it. And, you know, I don't get a chance to use my prescription, blah, 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 all the usual stuff, targets, blah, 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 right? And, um, and Harry said to me, he said, listen, community pharmacy is the place where you will use all your skills as a pharmacist no other role in in pharmacy will need you to um demonstrate professionalism to the same degree and um and I, I, that that is that view has has borne out to be true in my view and i think you're right i need to i i should probably qualify that the role of a pharmacist in in general practice which is, you know, it's the topic of the moment. It's the promised land at the moment, and and no doubt in five or ten years there'll be something else. But it's just that it's different to community pharmacy. It's not. It's not that it's better, or and I don't think, you know, I don't think there's. Um, it's just different. Um, yeah. You know, and yeah. and that's it, really. That's absolutely right. I mean, um, somebody said to me when I took this job in commissioning, which was the first time I'd ever done it. She said, you'll still be making a difference, but it will be a different difference. And I, I completely get that now because, I, you know, I'm not seeing patients. I was very used to seeing patients and having a very patient-facing role. I don't see any patients at the moment. I certainly don't use prescribing. Um, you could argue that there are other skills that I use that are 
more often that are not ones that were taught, you know, at Robert Gordon's uni. But um, it, I can still see a direct line between what I do now and what the impact on the patient is. And I think as long as you get something like that in your role, I mean, we all ultimately got into this, you know, by and large to, to do good things for patients. And as long as you can see a direct line between what you're doing and a positive outcome for a patient, then you can get the satisfaction in it. I think one of the frustrations I had in community pharmacy, and it, it was it was different when I worked in a, a, a small independent chain than when I worked for Boots, but I could I could see um I, I could see more clearly that the, the business existed not just to function as a money making business, but it existed for a, a kind of a a wider societal purpose and it was in a you know very um deprived area in, in glasgow and, and it really was the heart of the community and i think mm-hmm. that that has to be protected in some way so we you know we have to make sure that in the in the pursuit of of you know what we think is right for the profession and right for the healthcare system and everything we don't lose those really really valuable resources in the community and i think it'd be a terrible shame if we ended up with um you know losing three quarters of our community pharmacies and just having you know, one giant boots and one giant giant super drug in every city. I think because those things, those independent community pharmacies are so important. But equally, it's it's not realistic to expect them to transition on their own, and we need to support them with the transition into the new world. The only other thing I was going to say was, um, I forgot to say in my my last sort of bit I was saying there is that the travesty with community pharmacy over the years is, and and I think Harry said this to me as well is that we we don't or we haven't, and I know this is changing, but we haven't traditionally recorded what we're doing. We haven't recorded Mm -hmm. our interventions well enough. So there's an awful lot of sort of pharmaceutical care, medicines optimization, you know, as you say, managing really quite complex and dynamic risk, often when there's no one to to ask, you know, at five to five on a Saturday night. Um, So there is something around um, other healthcare professionals in the multidisciplinary team, namely GPs, not seeing the extent of what community pharmacists do. But I know that's changing. But anyway, I want to move on quickly to because um, I want to catch you about um, the Guild of Healthcare Pharmacists. So mm-hmm. I wrote an article recently um, about um, how membership of certain trade unions had had grown and waned. So, so for example, like top line, long story short, I, I managed to eke it out into, a, into an article, but long story short, um, the Guild, um, you guys don't publish your results. You're, you're a member of, of Unite, but the BPA, for example, are they, they, they've dropped slightly. The, um, that's the Boots Pharmacists Association. Yeah. Um, but the, the PDA was, I mean, I, I must admit, um, quite a quite a rise from 2010 I think around about 14,000 members of their union in 2010 and and now they're up to um, I don't know roughly 28,000 I think they announced at their conference this year um, what I mean have you any thoughts on that I mean what what's driving that I mean the parallel we, we were having a brief chat before the podcast you and as you know and I sort of made the point about you know the coal miners in the late 70s and well not just coal miners but folk working in manufacturing industry um joining a joining a union was very popular and union membership peaked i believe in the early 80s and then of course thatcher came in and we know what happened then but basically union membership increases 
Um, well, that's my assertion. It increases in the tough times. Um, now, the problem yeah. with coal mining and manufacturing is is that it was decimated. Do you think the same is going to happen to community pharmacy? I I really hope not. I really hope not. I think I think you're right. Uh, union membership does rise at a time when when there are more significant challenges, and I think. Um, the, the, the PDA have done a fantastic job in supporting community pharmacists and the, the, the work that they've done recently, particularly to be recognised in Boots, is is great because I think, um, I, I really strongly believe that everybody should have trade union membership for, for a variety of reasons that I'll come on to. Um, I, it, it's difficult because sometimes you need some of those challenges to, to focus people's minds on why being a member of a union is a, is a good thing and why it's necessary because it's, it's a bit like you know, having insurance when everything's going fine, you don't need it, you don't use it, and you can see it as a waste of money. But when something goes wrong, you 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 need it fairly quickly, and you need it then, and and you want to have good coverage when it's there. So, um, I think that you know, a kind of a reasonable parallel for for the guild, I suppose, is when um, Agenda for Change was was first being implemented, when it was being developed, and there was a um, you know, I, I think a lot of people don't don't realise uh, this is obviously before my time, but a lot of people don't realise just how significant the the guild was in um, getting a positive outcome for pharmacy from from the agenda for change process. Because in the initial versions of it, you had um, you know uh, specialist renal pharmacists coming out at a band five. You know, it was it was a mile away from where we are just now. And it was only through the good work of of people like you know Dave Miller, Dave Thornton, Tony West, and, and people like that who were around at the time, really kind of engaging with the NHS on a national level that that kind of got pharmacy recognised in the way that it is. And I think we we still benefit from that. I mean, I'm not suggesting agenda for change perfect. It's it's certainly a long way from it. But pharmacy has a far better position in it than than we would have done had we not had that collective bargaining power that we did. Um, at that time, and so, um, in the absence of of anything that's quite as kind of threatening as that, um, it's very easy and very understandable for people to think, well, why would I bother being a part of being a part of a trade union? And the same applies to any membership organisation. You know, the RPS and UKCPA and College of Mental Health Pharmacy and all these kind of things that that are all kind of competing for for membership, um, and and it's really difficult to kind of articulate. We, we find it difficult as a membership organisation to be able to try and really articulate what the benefit you get is because actually on a day-to-day basis when things are fine, you probably don't see an awful lot of benefit. But um, and this is where I think it's the, the benefits go beyond um, the sort of individual member benefits which people often think about when they think about a trade union, which is if I get into trouble at work, if I get, you know, if I get... Uh, a hard time for performance management or sickness or, or you know, somebody accused me of bullying, whatever whatever of those things it is, they think, well, that's when I'll need to call on um, a trade union representative. Um, and that's true and all that kind of stuff is really important. But actually, there's a huge amount of stuff that goes on in the background in terms of influencing uh, and engaging at a, at a national level and sometimes even at an international level to, to, to try and kind of progress the role of, of pharmacy and pharmacists. Um, that, that people quite often don't see. Um, and it's difficult. It's one of those things about, you know, you only get back what you what you put into it. Um, 
it's probably worth just kind of explaining what the, the sort of the structure of the guild is, because I think that's not necessarily well understood, but I think is, is really important. Um, you're right, we are part of uh, Unite the Union, which is the, the biggest union in, in the UK, which uh, has its pros and has its cons. Um, within that, we sit as the guild, which actually, you know, predates, um, it was an organisation a long time before uh, it joined uh, Unite or Amicus, as it was before. It's actually been going for uh, 99 years. So we're celebrating our, our centenary next year, which is, which is very exciting. Um, and it was originally the Guild of Hospital Pharmacists, and it's then become the Guild of Healthcare Pharmacists to recognise that pharmacists in the NHS don't just work in hospitals anymore. So it's all broadened out to primary care, general practice and commissioning and all sorts of other roles. Um, and within that, we have um, regional members. Uh, so everybody, uh, you know, if you go on our website, you'll be able to find who your regional member is. So if you need to engage with them at any stage or if you want to, they'd be delighted to hear from you. And then we also have a, a, a national um, occupational professional committee, which um, uh, is made up of, of various kind of executive roles. Um, so including um, president, our, our current president is, is Dr. Roshino here from, from Northern Ireland. Uh, immediate past president is Graham Richardson. Um, myself as uh, as vice president, and then we've got various other various other roles around it. Wazim Bakir, who does comms, um, and, and you know various different roles. So we we are trying to influence things on a on a national level, and we engage engage a lot with people like the RPS, as I mentioned earlier, and NHS England, and, and likewise in the um, in Scotland and Wales and, and Northern Ireland as well. Um, so we do a lot of that kind of stuff behind the scenes. Um, and I suppose when, when people kind of ask the question about, well, what do I get back from it? Um, I, I think I think the key to that is, is, well, what do you need is one question and what can you put into it? I mean, all of those people that sit, that work as regional members and that sit on the, uh, the NOPC, um, we all do it entirely voluntary. We've all got day jobs. We do this completely in our own time. Um, and we do it because we believe it's the right thing to do, um, and we do it because we believe in, in um, representing the, the profession and the people within the profession, and, and we would love for more people to do that. Um, obviously, um, we are quite different to um, other types of unions. You've got um, you know the other unions that, that people can be a member of that don't have any kind of specific pharmacy representation in it. And then you've got the pharmacist specialist unions like like the PDA, and and we're all different, and they're all, you know, benefits and and um, disbenefits of being members of of different types of of organisations. But I suppose the key message I would want to get across to people is is be part of a union. You know, I'm, I'm not saying be part of our union necessarily if it's not the best fit for you, but be part of a union because um, it, it it's really really important. That collective voice is something that is is incredibly important. Pharmacy as a profession is not great at shouting up for itself. Um, I think we've probably become better at it over the years, but we are still kind of dwarfed by, uh, you know, nursing and medical colleagues. And so we need to take advantage of these bigger organisations like, you know, ourselves, the RPS, PDA and things like that to, to be able to kind of make our make our voice heard. And, and I think, you know, sitting back and saying, well, what do I get back for it is, is not really kind of the right way to look at it. It's what's my opportunity to contribute. I think is a more more helpful way to look at it. 
And I think, I mean, I'm a member. I'm a member of the the PDA, and 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 thank goodness I've I've sought their advice on a on a few occasions when relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also should declare that I was I was a member of the the BPA, the Boots Pharmacy Association, and um, mm-hmm. you know I've mentioned this before when the, I I got marked as not performed by a, a non non pharmacist area manager, um, and okay. and. Uh, I, I politely disagreed, and, um, and and that that was that was overturned. Now, the interest, you know, the interesting bit for me in that scenario was that the BPA representative that represented me was also a manager in the company. So you mentioned the boots agreement. I mean, my little example explains very succinctly why that um, ballot and subsequent decision was so so important because it's one thing. It's one thing to overturn a you know a performance rating like 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 my case, which could be seen as minor. I mean, my goodness, it didn't feel minor to me at the time, yes. um, and a, it had a psychological impact. Don't get me wrong, but I do wonder how uh, you know if if a if a if a manager in the same company is sitting on both sides of the table, how you would ever negotiate pay and benefits and so on and so forth. So. You know, I do think that independence is important, but no, it's really interesting to to hear about the guild. And who who would who are your target pharmacists then? Who are your target audience, Ewan? Yeah, I mean, it's it's that it's a phrase that I don't particularly like, but pharmacists working in the managed sector. So so realistically, anybody who's working for in a hospital in a CCG or in a general practice, anyone who's working for the NHS, effectively. Um, that's that's really who we who we represent. Um, I think, and, and this is it's probably worth mentioning. Uh, you know, I kind of hinted at the, the pros and the cons of being part of of Unite, which is a much bigger union. And I think sometimes that's something that, that people can can view solely as a negative because they think, well, we're we're only a small part of what is a, what is an enormous trade union. Um, and I and I do recognise that, and I think there's there's something about that. What I would say though is that the the executive committee that we have is is entirely made up of pharmacists and um often senior pharmacists with an awful lot of experience and we've we've had occasions where um uh, we have a number of pharmacists who are individual workplace reps so if you're a member of um if you're a member of the guild it's worth finding out whether your workplace whether your pharmacy department if you're in a hospital or whatever has a, a pharmacist workplace rep um because um, they're your kind of predominant support for you know the issues like like you've described where you get into an individual issue and you're looking for support. There are some places that don't have individual pharmacist reps, and you'll have a more generic um, unite rep who will come from somewhere else in the organisation, um, and they're all um, equally well trained and equally well able to support you. What I would say is though, occasionally we get feedback that if there's a particular professional issue. That, that you feel that you know somebody who is not a pharmacist doesn't doesn't quite understand or, or can't quite represent you in the right way, then it's worth making contact with us at the guild, um, you know, specifically through through our exec and and saying you know this is the particular issue um, because I think sometimes you know as with any profession we have very very profession specific issues um, and sometimes you need the experience of of somebody who's who's in a kind of a senior role to, or who understands what that's like to be able to kind of better advise you. Um, you know, one of the things I would quite like to do within the Guild over the next couple of years is um, to try and look 
to um, to, to provide almost a kind of a, a, a to, to get somebody in who's got an awful lot of experience, maybe a, like you know a retired chief pharmacist or something like that, who can support better with those individual member queries. Um, because I think if I, I like to think if I found myself in the position whereby I was um, you know, by by of a, a dispensing or a prescribing error or something like that, I found myself in a bit of trouble. The prospect of having a, a very senior, very qualified, and very experienced pharmacy manager to be able to support me with that would be enormously helpful. Um, somebody who who kind of knows what it's like from the other side, but isn't actively sitting on the other side at the time. Um, I think that would be that would be really helpful. I was going to say, paradoxically, um, before I finish, paradoxically the you know, I don't want to go on and on about my case. It's ancient history now, and it was only a not performed thing. But actually, paradoxically, probably the best person to help me and get the result that I wanted at that moment was someone who worked for the company. So, yeah. so the the guy the guy that represented me did so really well, and that was exactly because he understood the system. So, so taking it back to your plan about what you'd like to see next in the guild, that that bringing in senior senior NHS pharmacist, I mean, that makes complete sense to me. Um, yeah, and having, having worked as a manager in the NHS for a number of years now, I've obviously managed, you know, disciplinaries, grievances, performance management, and all those kind of things. And there are times when, uh, outside of my role, when I've advised people on a kind of an informal basis who are going through those sorts of situations themselves, and actually my perspective of the process and how the process runs and how it works and how, you can make sure that you're well represented in the process is is something that actually people find it really valuable because you can only see it from your perspective and have somebody who can know and understand the other perspective and help to interpret that for you is actually really really important it's really valuable mm-hmm. well listen it's been it's been uh, fantastic speaking to you and thank you very much for taking the time i know how busy you are um, and i hope i hope you've i hope you've enjoyed the 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 blather as we would say up in Scotland. Absolutely, no, it's been great. Thank you very much for, for inviting us on. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. You you, you are another one of these people, though, that uh, that I speak to or, or tweet or or communicate with remotely. So I, I do hope um, hope we get the chance to meet up and, and say hello in person at some stage. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. I think, again, the film will both be circulating in the pharmacy world for, for some time to come. So I'm sure that day will happen. That day will uh, happen. Absolutely. One final question that I ask, um, I, I always caveat this by saying not older pharmacists, but more experienced pharmacists. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's very important to um, sort of set an example for, for younger pharmacists coming through or, or, or indeed pharmacists that have just qualified. What would your advice be to newly qualified pharmacists coming onto the register if they were starting work tomorrow, say? Oof, that's a that's a tough question. Um, I think <clears throat> I think if you speak to any pharmacist who's been qualified for more than probably about six months a year, we've all got at least one example, possibly more than one example, of when we've made a right mess of something. Um, and you know, you hope it's not loads of examples, but we've all done it. And it, it's usually those things that have a more of a, a, a kind of a, a direct patient impact. So for me, it was a particular dispensing error when I was in my year qualified. Or it was a dispensing error. I was checking it, and I and I, I missed it, and I made a mistake. And that's something that that has stayed with me ever since. And I I could have chosen to have, you know, beaten myself up about it and feel terrible about it. Instead, what I decided to do was to, to accept it, to own it, to to 
learn from it and talk about it with other people because I think that's the only way that we can develop confidence in ourselves and in others is if we acknowledge that um, things don't go right all the time and that actually when something goes wrong you need people around you who can who can help and support you and that will only happen if you're honest with people and they're and they're honest with you so I would say when when that thing happens and and each of us will know when it is and when it happens we'll know that one thing that we've really cocked up on um what I would say is don't don't hide from it own it talk about it share your experience with other people because other people will benefit from from it and they will have similar experiences they can reflect back on you that can help you get get past that well for a, for a difficult question that was a cracking answer so uh, thank, thank you very, very much. much for that a great great way to finish you and uh, um, thank you very much uh, i hope you see some of the sunshine that we're getting up in aberdeenshire and uh, and i'll speak to you soon okay all right cheers jonathan thanks very much then cheers you and bye-bye bye-bye